It's good to see you. My name's Steve. Uh, um, I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to be here this morning. And um, we are in the midst of a teaching series that we are calling The Story uh, of God or The Story of the Kingdom. Uh, And one of the things that we're doing this year is attempting to uh, follow uh, the church calendar. Uh, and, and, And so we're in this period of time between Resurrection Sunday and Pentecost Sunday that you just heard about. Uh, we're in between this time, and, um, uh, and during this time, we, we see in the, in the book of Acts, uh, before Jesus ascended to be at the right hand of the Father, he spent some time with his followers. It says in Acts 1.3, he says, he appeared to them after his resurrection over a period of 40 days, and he spoke about the kingdom of God. And, and, and so for us, during this period between Resurrection Sunday, Pentecost Sunday, uh, we're taking a few weeks to just explore the story of his kingdom. That right at the center of Jesus' message and his ministry was the story of his kingdom. That Jesus, he not only proclaimed his kingdom with the things that he said, but he also demonstrated his kingdom uh, through, through what he did. And so, um, so one of the themes that we're picking up on is that this idea that all of us are living in a story. We're all living in a story, an unfolding story. We're all part of God's story. We often refer to it as God's big story. We're, we're, and we all find ourselves in the midst of this, that as followers of Jesus, those who have surrendered themselves to him, our challenge is to be people who live in the context of his story. It's not our story, it's his story. We're not the superstars, he's the superstar. Uh, And we get to live in his story, the story of his kingdom rule. And uh, and our hope is, is that story would permeate the whole of our lives. Uh, that we would be a people caught up in his kingdom story, that every part of our lives would become redemptive in its nature, Uh, that every single aspect of who we are uh, would would live out and breathe this kingdom reality, that we wouldn't settle for like this sacred, secular divide where, where we have our spiritual life and we have our secular life. Uh, that, that everything that makes us human would be immersed in his kingdom. And, and, and so this morning, as we continue uh, to look at the story of the kingdom, um, I want to talk about the kingdom and our work. Uh, the kingdom and our work. But before we do that, I just want to ask you, uh, ask you a question. Um, many of us who engage in work whether that's paid or not. Uh, it could, you could equally be a full-time parent, uh, carer, full-time grandparent these days. Um, you might be retired. But my guess is all of us are engaged in some sort of activity of some kind, whether we're paid or not. And so this time tomorrow, all of us will wake up and we'll be engaged in something. And so what I want you to do is just turn to someone next to you, behind you, and tell them what you're going to be doing this time tomorrow. Go for it.
Okay. Okay, you can stop talking now. <clears throat> My guess is many of us in this room are at a certain stage in our working lives. Um, you know, maybe um, in our first careers or in our second careers or third careers. But many of us are, are in a certain part of our working life experience. And, um, you know, I remember... Uh, when I was young, one of my first jobs out of full-time education uh, was working in a soap factory. Uh, working in a soap factory. And what, what I did was uh, the soap would come down the production line, I would take them off the production line and put them in boxes. Mind-numbing. Um, the one bonus was is that it smelt nice. Um, it smelt nice. And, um, but I remember... Um, it, it kind of changed, and um, it got difficult when the production changed. And basically what happened was they would go from making one kind of soap to another. And often they'd go from making a really dark-colored soap to a light-colored soap. And so what happened was that they turned all the machines off, they gave you a set of overalls and a scraper, and you had to climb inside these massive machines and scrape off all the excess soap. I'm sure there's a health and safety issue there, um, but I was being paid, so I did it. Uh, and, and so, but I really hated that job, and I'm sure many of us um, have, have had challenging jobs. Maybe when you were in college or university or at the start of your career, we, we've experienced jobs that are horrible. I remember one job I had for one day, and that was hanging car parts on hooks as they went around this factory and got painted. I lasted, I lasted a whole day. Um, I, um, I, I could tell you lots of stories about jobs that I've had. But yeah, um, but you know, maybe some of us know what it looks like to experience horrible jobs. <laughs> maybe some of us um, who are maybe 10, 20, 30 years into our working lives still have an element of of dissatisfaction uh, when it comes to our work. The truth is, is for many of us, work can feel frustrating, can't it? Work can feel difficult at times. It feels hard. It feels like a chore. Sometimes work kind of gets in the way. One of the reasons work is frustrating is because we have to work with other people. Have you, ever, have you ever noticed that, that work is frustrating most of the time because we have to work with other people? So if you've been in any working environment for any length of time, you have probably met someone who is demanding or difficult, unreasonable. Maybe you've worked with people who just can't manage their time. They can't manage people. Uh, maybe you've uh, worked with people who are unmotivated, um, uh, who are relationally challenged. Um, maybe you've worked with people who are just downright lazy. Um, see, working with, with other people in whatever context can be difficult. People are difficult. But we have to be careful when it comes to speaking and thinking about uh, talking about people that we work with who are difficult, because the truth is, you are probably someone's difficult person. 
you are probably someone else, someone else's difficult person. Did you, did you know that? that? That you are probably the exact person that someone else finds difficult. That someone else is probably praying, God, help me deal with this person, meaning you. Um, you know, this, this person drives me crazy. And so having to work with other people can make work really, really frustrating. But another reason work can be frustrating is because as, as followers of Jesus, we, we often fail to understand the relationship between our work and God's kingdom. And so we often carry this deep misunderstanding about our work, that, that our work is, is seemingly irrelevant to anything else that matters in life. Uh, and in many ways, um, as many of us think this. Many of us operate with this kind of, of thinking. Whatever we might do, be it teaching or working in healthcare or business or serving overpriced coffee or cleaning up after people, um, whatever we do, we often struggle to connect uh, how that has anything to do with the promotion of God's kingdom. How on earth does what I do promote what God wants to do in the world? You see, we fail to see the connection between what we do here on a Sunday morning for an hour and a half and what we do the whole rest of the week. We, we end up with a wrong uh, view of work. We have a wrong perspective on what work looks like. One of the, the greatest heresies um, of the church historically is a heresy uh, called Gnosticism. Uh, and, and what the Gnostics believed was they, they, they basically they took the Christian faith and they filtered it through a Greek philosophy. They, they filtered it through a lens of Greek f- philosophy. And, and, and one of the key kind of signatures of Gnosticism is the teaching of, of dualism. Of dualism. This, this idea that the physical, material world was seen as somehow substandard to the more important, immaterial, spiritual world. That's essentially what Gnostics believed. At least on two occasions, the Apostle Paul, um, he, he confronts this in the church. He, he sees this growing belief system entering into the thinking of the followers of Jesus. And on a couple of occasions, he addresses this. Uh, the first is in 1 Timothy chapter 4. If you've got a Bible, you might want to turn there. 1 Timothy 4. And it says this, The Spirit clearly says that in latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teaching comes through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. And so Paul is saying to 
saying to Timothy, on the surface, this, this Gnostic philosophy, it sounds okay. It sounds okay, but actually, it's teaching that's been brought to you, and it's influenced by demons. It's influenced by the demonic, that, that, that Satan is the one who brings this teaching. It's not authentic spirituality, because the truth is, we're to respect what God has created. We're to respect the work of God's hand. And that includes the physical world, the physical world that is made. That God's people aren't called to run away from the things that God has created. But we're to embrace the good things that God has made. We're, we're to enjoy his creation. Yet on the surface, this Gnostic approach to life, it seems so spiritual. It seems so right, doesn't it? It seems so spiritual. After all, I'm suppressing my, my physical desires so I can invest in more spiritual things, more higher things. And you see, this dualism between body and soul, between earth and heaven, between the material and immaterial, this Gnostic dualism has wormed its way into the church like cancer for the last 2,000 years. It's wormed its way in. And it's subtle. It creeps in. We don't realize it. We, 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 see, we say things. We hear things. If you've ever heard someone say this, the reason Jesus died on the cross was to save souls for heaven. If you've ever heard someone say this, that's Gnosticism. That's Gnosticism. That isn't biblical. That isn't a biblical perspective. Jesus doesn't save souls. He saves bodies. He saves bodies. The Bible talks about him saving people, not just their souls. He saves every part of our being. Our ultimate state isn't to become this immaterial, ghostly being that floats around the heavenlies. That isn't what's going to happen. The Bible teaches us, the Christian tradition teaches us, that our eternal state is a resurrected body. A resurrected body. And you see, according to the end of this book, according to the end of the Bible, our eternal home isn't somewhere up there in the heavenlies, but God is making a new earth. A new earth freed from the curse of sin. And so how does this Gnostic dualism apply to our work? Well, one place that we see this dualism at work is this conflict between the secular and the spiritual. The secular versus the spiritual. In the Middle Ages, uh, the church taught that marriage was permissible, but celibacy was more spiritual. Uh, professions were uh, uh, permissible, but getting rid of all your... Sorry, profession, possessions uh, were permissible. Getting rid of all your possessions was really the ideal. It was okay to have a nine-to-five job, but it was better to be a priest or a monk who could you know, sit around all day contemplating God. The normal 
secular things of life are okay. But if you really wanted to reach God's highest standard, then you need to be a spiritual professional. You need to become a full-time Christian worker. See, this secular versus spiritual divide has infected the church. Uh, and many of us are left thinking, what the thing that I do, how does that impact God's kingdom? What, what meaning does that have? What I do is totally irrelevant. And you might be a person who thinks that. You might think, that's true. It is totally irrelevant. You might think, I spend my whole day basically looking after kids. I spend my whole time just raising my kids, being a mum, being a dad. I spend life checking people's blood pressure or processing insurance claim forms or working in an office. How on earth has this got anything to do with the kingdom? How on earth does that compare to being a pastor? <laughs> How does that compare to being a youth worker or, or going to Bible college or, better still, being a missionary? Surely that's the work that I need to do. How does this compare? Do any of us know what the Protestant Reformation was about? In the 16th century, the Protestant Reformation was really all about breaking this divide between the secular and the so-called sacred or spiritual. It was all about rediscovering the fact that you and I, all of us, are full-time Christians. Every single one of us are called to be full-time Christians. That it's not left to being a, a paid professional. Christianity teaches us that God's kingdom comes when we serve others. When we serve others and through any legitimate work that we do. Any legitimate work. And so as we show God's kindness, as we show God's patience, as we show God's character uh, to those we work with, as we seek to improve our little corner of the world, uh, we engage and we're engaging in God's agenda to reveal something of his kingdom. That's what we're doing when we do those things. And you see, the Protestant Reformation was all about restoring the goodness of work. The goodness of work. And I, actually, I would suggest any task that we do to serve someone else, to improve the world in some way, to keep the world from falling apart, it all brings God's rule and reign into the situation. It all brings his kingdom into the world. And so let's not be misled thinking that some things are, are secular and so worthless, and some things are spiritual and they're worth everything. It's, it simply isn't true. Another dualism that creeps in is this divide between doing and being, as if doing and being is some kind of Christian um, distinction. But this isn't consistent with the Scriptures. This idea of being and doing being two separate things, it isn't consistent with the scriptures. And yet I hear people all the time just like, I'm just being. I'm just going to be for a season. I can't serve. I can't work. I'm just going to be. I'm just going to be. It's just dualism. If we turn to Genesis chapter 2, 
It says this, Genesis 2 and verse 2, it says, By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, he rested from all the work of creating he had done. And in verse 15 of chapter 2, it says, The Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. God's creation of the world is defined as work. That God is a God who works. And, you know, this is at complete odds with all of the other ancient religions of the past. You see, in those other ancient religions, the gods did nothing. They, they lay around doing nothing all day, and it was the people they put to work. In those other worldviews, work is nothing more than this necessary evil that we, we have to engage in. But the God of the, for the God of the Bible, work, in fact, is a delight. Work is a delight. Genesis, Genesis 1.31, God saw all that he made, and it was very good. It was very good. God looked at his work, and he says, this is good stuff. I love this. This is, this is important. See, God is a worker, and he creates human beings in his image to be workers, to be people who work. And you see, an essential part of our humanity, an essential part of what it means for us to flourish as human beings is to work. It's what makes us, it's what makes us human. And we should know this, work is more than doing something to pick up a paycheck. We know, I know we know that, but I think we need to hear it. That many of us do things that we don't get paid for, and that's work. That's work. And see, one of the most dehumanizing things to ever happen to a person is to suddenly find ourselves without work. To be without work, to be unfulfilled and without purpose in life. My, my mum, she retired like 14, 13 years ago. And um, she, uh, her church that she goes to, she volunteers in their food bank. And whenever I phone her up, she's like, oh, I've just got to go to work. I've just got to go to work. She's volunteering at the food bank. But that's her work. That's something that she enjoys doing. It's something that keeps her productive and fulfilled. She, she feels like she's contributing to society. She's living out her humanity. And so we all, however old, whether we get paid or not, need to be productive in some way. It's what makes us human. So yes, we are human beings, but we don't need that much encouragement doing being human beings, okay? We're called to be human doings as well. Productivity is part of humanity. So we can have the wrong perspective of work, can't we? We can have some messed up perspectives on work because Gnosticism infects our brains, and uh, it's just the way the reality of the world is. But there's also an inadequate way to look at work. 
And that is for us to have a higher and lower standard. And I think I've got a slide to illustrate this, but we can often have this mentality where, where God is up at the top and everything else, you know, God's up at the top in heaven and everything else, family, work, friendships, recreation, um, engaging in the arts, whatever it might be, that's all secondary and lower earthly things that we do. And we justify that perspective with passages like this in Matthew 6, 33. It says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all those earthly, unimportant things will be given to you as well. That's how we read it, isn't it? That's how we often read it. And of course, God should be number one. Of course, he's the one that we're meant to worship. We're not meant to worship our kids. Okay, just so you know, we're not meant to worship our work. We're not meant to worship our recreation time. When we worship anything other than God, the Bible says that becomes the sin of idolatry. And as C.S. Lewis said, idols always break the hearts of its worshippers. So we're not called to be worshippers of anything else other than God. But the problem is, is when we think with this higher and lower perspective. We think, that we think of things as higher activities, like evangelism, or prayer, or Bible study, or worship. We think of them as the higher activities, and then we think the lower activities are like things like my work, or playing some sort of recreational sport, or spending time with my family, or pursuing the arts, whatever it might be, they're secondary. They're not important. They're, they're, they're earthy things. And so when we think like that, and when we think like that particularly about our work, work becomes irrelevant. We see it as a, a means to another end. It's not important. What I do for the majority of the week, is, it's, it's not important. See, the problem is the difference between what we might call lifeboat theology and what we might call ark theology. See, lifeboat theology sees creation being a bit like the Titanic. We've hit the iceberg, iceberg of sin, and there's nothing for us to do uh, to, other than get ourselves onto a lifeboat. You know, this, this thing's going down. The only thing um, to be concerned about is rescuing people for heaven. That's all we need to do. Anything else is just arranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Anything else we do, that's lifeboat theology. Or we can have ark theology. See, an ark saved not only people, but it preserved God's other creatures as well. The ark wasn't designed to flee the world, but it was designed to restore the world once the flood had receded. Or maybe you can think about it like this. When you think about the future do you, and you think about this world, do you think just everything's going to be burnt up? It's all just going to be burnt up. It's all, it's all going to be gone. Everything's going to disappear. You know, that's the picture that's painted, isn't it? That was, that was the picture I had given to me as a child growing up in church. It's all worthless. It's all going to be burnt up. It's all going to be destroyed. I just want to, I want to 
suggests that perhaps that isn't as biblical a perspective as we've been led to believe. I think a better way to think about the future is not that creation will just be destroyed, (laughs) that it will all be burnt up. You know, the thing that will be burnt up is sin. The thing that will be burnt up is corruption. The thing that will be burnt up, the thing that will be destroyed is Satan and the works of the evil one. But the mountains, the streams, the animals, the the works of art, I'm convinced the Sistine Chapel will be in heaven. Perfected, but in heaven. See, the great treasures of our culture, um, I, I don't see these things as being burnt up at all. And what we do know is that one day, these treasures, these things, we will lay at Jesus' feet. And they will be in the fullness of his kingdom. And they will be perfected in every way. That we believe God is making all things new. He's making everything new. And so I would contest that nothing that we we do in this life that reflects the reality of his kingdom will be wasted. And that includes what we do for our jobs, for our work. So what's a better way, finishing up, to look at work? Matthew 5, Jesus says this. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The kingdom of God is described as salt and light that permeates everything. It permeates everything. And so a better picture of the kingdom in terms of how it relates to our lives is is this one, if we can click the slide. It's this idea that actually in God's kingdom, God is at the center. And all these other things that we make up our lives, family, work, friendship, recreation, the arts, all of those other things are permeated by his kingdom. All those other spheres of our life are meant to be permeated by his kingdom. And so Jesus says, in your work, you're to be salt. You're to be like salt. You know, in the ancient world, salt was primarily a preservative. A little bit of salt was rubbed into meat to stop it from going bad. And you see, the encouraging thing about salt is it's not insignificant. It's not insignificant. And, 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 you know, you might look at work and think, what can I do? I'm totally insignificant in my workplace. What impact can I have? How can I see the kingdom come in my workplace? But here's the thing. The, the mass of salt 
doesn't have to be as big as the mass of the meat in which the salt is rubbed into. It's a little salt that preserves a much larger piece of meat from decaying. That you and I can be people who bring the kingdom, who permeate the kingdom in our workplaces, and it's not insignificant. It's not insignificant. Jesus invites us to be like light. And, you know, it's easy to be despairing, isn't it? It's easy to think, you know, the world is such a terrible place. Why has the world gone so wrong? But, you know, the world is a dark place because it's acting according to its nature. It acts according to its nature. Our question shouldn't be what's gone wrong. Our question should be where is the light? Where is the light? Where are the men and women of God who bring the light of God's kingdom to the world? Where are those people? You see, I long for the day where we don't just commission people to plant churches, which is a really good thing to do, by the way, and we want to do lots of that. But I long for the day where we don't just commission people to plant churches, but we commission people to start businesses where we commission men and women to go and infiltrate and and be in the midst of things like the arts and media, to be people who have meaningful impact in some of those places, that we would have men and women who love Jesus with all their hearts, and they don't just do a slightly terrible Christian version of things. Anybody seen that? (laughs) It's just me. Um, that we wouldn't just raise up people who do really naff Christian version of things. But actually, we would raise up men and women who are in the middle of a culture and they're bringing the light of the kingdom wherever they find themselves. That's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to do. We're We're not called to imitate culture, are we? And we're not actually called to criticize culture, but we're called to create culture. We're called to bring creativity into the culture around us. And so wherever we find ourselves, we are to be bearers of the kingdom. We are to be salt and light and to to work as hard as we can. Because I think that where we work with full dignity, where we give ourselves to uh, to our work in a, in a productive and healthy way, it bears eternal value. That bears an eternal value. It's, it's important. What you do here on a, for an hour and a half on a Sunday, that's okay. But what you do for 20, 30, 40 hours of the week, rest of the week, that's important. That's important. It's far more important for the kingdom far more important. So why don't we stand and uh, I'll pray for us.